1: Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, GP John Paz. With me today, very special guest. He's an author and a wrestling historian. He's a CAC James Melby Historian Award winner. He is Mr. Mike Rogers. Mike, welcome to the two-man power trip.
0: Thank you very much. It's, I'm happy to be on your show.
1: Today, we're here to talk about your new book, Excitement in the Air, The Voices of Northwest Wrestling, Volume 1. Tell us a little bit about this awesome book.
0: Yeah, in 1983, I started a, a little bulletin, and it was called Ring Around the Northwest. And it was three pages, uh, just done on a typewriter. And uh, I just kept kept doing it, and probably about 1987, I decided to make it a little bit bigger and try to try to include some interviews. And uh, Scott Teal, who's another historian, had a little bulletin out, and it was called Whatever Happened To... And he would print very short biographies or short interviews with people, with wrestlers, and he would include their contact information, which I found fascinating in it. It was mostly intended for other wrestlers to maybe get a hold of their friends. And I thought, this is a perfect way to contact some of these wrestlers and see if I can start doing my own interviews with them, and I wanted to concentrate on the wrestlers who had been in the Northwest and touch on their time here. And so I was able to do three or four interviews in, in that manner, and then I started... I was invited to Dean Silverstone's reunion, and Dean Silverstone was a, a promoter in the in the Northwest, and um, he had these fantastic reunions, where um, I went to maybe five or six of them, and he had at times Johnny Valentine, Ray Stevens, Pat Patterson, Don Leo, Jonathan. I remember the very first time I, I stepped in his house. I, you know, turned and looked one way, and and I think I saw Don Leo, Jonathan, and Dina Gucci, and turned the other way, and there was Ivan Koloff and and Pat Patterson, and it was just like I was just you know in in heaven. Here where all the, all these idols and everything. There was there was probably a hundred wrestlers there, a, a lot of big names, but a lot of uh, local Northwest wrestlers and. I just stood around and listened and listened to their stories and, you know, visited a little bit, but more or less just kept my mouth shut. And and, uh, through that, I made a few more contacts and was able to eventually do, do some more interviews.
1: So this book, really, I mean, like you said, I mean, it's it's from a long to ago, you know, and all these interviews and stuff. So it's basically you compiled all these interviews and you decided to put it and get it into a book.
0: Exactly, exactly. But the Bulletin, Ring Around the Northwest, ran about 30 years, from 83 to 2013. And I had over 100 interviews, and some of them were local wrestlers that, you know, people around the country really hadn't heard of. But I was really fortunate to get quite a number of of wrestlers who people would be familiar with. Um, and so we, a friend of mine, helped me edit Frank Colberts, and he he was helping me edit some of the interviews and lay them out. And I said, you know, we've we've certainly got enough for two books, maybe even three. And uh, you know the the second one's going to be just as compelling with with enough names, and so we we tried to arrange it where the first one we, we have some current wrestlers uh, Daniel Bryan, uh, Brian Danielson, Kyle O'Reilly who are popular you know in today's wrestling. So if somebody picked up the book you know and, and weren't familiar with all the the older wrestlers, there'd be at least a couple names that that uh, you would be familiar with. And then in that first first volume, we've got Don Leo, Jonathan, Dutch Savage, Bull Ramos, uh Tom Pritchard, who I know you're familiar with, mm-hmm. um, Doctor Luther, who can be seen on a&, AEW wrestling. Stan Stasia. 27, 27 interviews in in the first one and uh, I, I'm really, really pleased with how it turned out.
1: When you looking back and thinking of, like, wow, all these awesome interviews, what kind of made you want to put it into a book? It's just that there was so much there, you, you felt like, you know, you really had so much meat on the bone you couldn't make it into a series of books.
0: I had a, a reader maybe about 10 to 15 years ago tell me that, you know you should put some of these interviews into a book and and he had the means to to try and help me with that and then he had some health problems and he kind of kind of backed out and uh, i had some conversations with Scott Teal and and uh, he definitely encouraged me that um, he felt there was at least one book there and and uh, we were going to work together and he also decided to back off a little bit on some of his uh, extra, extra projects. And so the, I reached out to John Cosper, who has done uh, quite a few wrestling books. And uh, I told him that I think the meat of the, the project would be done, but I had no idea what to do with it. And that that's where John fit in perfectly. Um, that's where his expertise lies and so we worked with him and and uh, um, that's how that's how our our book came about the one other really really fascinating thing at least to me we had done the work and we said okay John here it is and we sent it away to him and and uh, whatever John needed to do i figured that would take a couple months i went went woke up the next morning and got on the computer and There it was. It was on Amazon. I I couldn't believe it. It, it, Whatever John had to do, it took him like a a day or so, and there it was.
1: Pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, very happy with how that worked out.
1: So just thinking about, obviously, the book, Excitement in the Air, what makes Northwest Wrestling so special, like that Portland territory? What made that so interesting and intriguing as a fan?
0: as a, portland i feel was a little bit unique because for a big city portland's really small small community if that makes sense it's small in the, um for being a big city and portland wrestling was literally a tra- tradition in the area even if you weren't a wrestling fan you knew about portland wrestling you know you knew some of the the wrestlers over the eras, Lonnie Main and Tony Bourne, and later on Buddy Rose and Roddy Piper, people knew those um, those wrestlers. They knew what time the wrestling show was on. It was just a such a tradition in the area, and the the name excitement in the air. Lonnie Main, who was probably one of our biggest stars in the Northwest, it was his saying he would he would do a promo. Promo on an upcoming match, and he turned to the announcer at the at the very end, and he the announcer's name was Frank Bonima, and he'd say, "Frank, next Saturday night there's going to be excitement in the air," and so that was his saying, and it was a catchphrase that that I really only heard of in Portland wrestling, and uh, so that's where the the name of the book came from
1: with Portland. And, you know, the the legendary names you kind of mentioned, they always say, and even, you know, everyone always brings it up today, Roddy Piper, the most over guy in Portland. What was it about just Piper in general in that area that just seemed to uh, mesh so well together?
0: I think Piper came in, and I really don't think the promotion had too many expectations of him. He had left Los Angeles usually when a when they really think somebody is going to catch fire they'll they will build him up a, a few weeks prior to him coming and they never had said anything about piper coming um and he he showed up uh and i think to be honest even as a heel piper was just so cool he talked so fast and and never mess up his words and and he was just you know i think the people kind of liked him even when he was a, a bad guy but when he turned babyface, he just he just got over so so big and everybody remembers piper from portland but he really wasn't here that long I'd, i'm not even sure if he was here a year and then he headed off to georgia and mid-atlantic but um yeah, he he definitely definitely one of the standouts.
1: With you know, Portland being so big, obviously Don Owen is everybody's kind of go to when they think of big promoter. When did he kinda of come about and really kinda of take over the territory and how did he kind of flourish and become one of the biggest promoters in that area?
0: It's it's an interesting story in that Way, way back in the 30s, Don Owen's dad, Herb Owen, started working with a wrestler by the name of Ted Thigh. And the story goes that <clears throat> Ted Thigh would spend about six months in Portland, and then he would go to Australia. And their, supposedly their commission would only allow one promotion in the area – so Herboen evidently had his name on the license and Ted Thigh went to Australia and Herb Owen just kind of took the promotion over. And I think Don and Elton Owen, you know, grew up, they started becoming involved and I, I think around 1948, and I may have that date incorrect, but around that time, uh, he had passed away, and then Don just kind of took over from there. And uh, most wrestlers always have something positive to say. They feel like he was honest. Um, you know, so many wrestlers, when you ask who were the best promoters that they worked for, usually if they worked for Paul Bosch in Houston, that's the name that comes up. But usually also Don Owen is in that same same paragraph. They, they feel that he, he uh, was honest on the payoffs and it was a great territory, especially for young wrestlers to learn. Um, there was a few few wrestlers who were not happy, obviously. You know, it's, it's, being a promoter is a hard job, but the majority of the wrestlers did like working for Don.
1: With him, I mean, he lasted a very long time and did very well. Everybody knows the Pacific Northwest. Was he like a good payoff man, like stuff like that? Was was that always something that they came up with the boys?
0: They, they do say that he was fair. Um, you know, being a smaller promotion, I don't think anybody really got rich in Portland. But um, there, there's some funny stories about payoffs. <laughs> Supposedly, he would he would bring each wrestler into his little office at the sports arena and uh, would start you know maybe getting rolls of quarters or start counting out 1 dollar bills and he would kind of glance and and the legend is that if the wrestler kind of smiled as he's counting out his 1 dollar bills it gives Don an indication of maybe that's where he's going to stop <laughs> but uh, yeah i've heard from a lot of wrestlers, you know, maybe their payoff was in rolls of quarters or, or single dollar bills, you know, a, a large number of them.
1: It's a little odd, right? It's a little <laughs> off. <laughs> How did you get the interview with him? Because I feel like I don't know. I haven't seen many interviews. Obviously, this was done a while ago, but I don't know if I've seen many interviews with him. I feel like that's got to be a really rare get.
0: It. It's a funny story. He was <laughs> mid '80s. He was getting ready to promote his biggest show, the, the 60th anniversary of Owen Promotion, and I had started sending him my bulletin. And I'm very, very naive at this point. I'm thinking like he'll love this bulletin, you know, so much about about wrestling, you know, and and then I I pictured this. Then I'll go down to Eugene, where he lives, and we will walk along his his cattle field and we will talk about wrestling and we'll bond and I will get this interview. so the time comes, and I call him up, and I explain who I am, and he goes, "You're the one who does that goddamn bulletin." <laughs> and I thought, oh no, this is not going how I anticipated." but uh he goes okay send me send me your questions and uh I did, and to his credit, uh, you know he hand hand wrote the answers to you know it was very brief, but he did hand write them out and took the time to do it, and mailed it back to me and uh, yeah, I do feel it's one of the few few uh interviews that he ever did and and you don't hear, he, you know, he never did a lot of newspaper interviews or he rarely, you know, he would do the announcing on Portland Wrestling, but I don't think he felt comfortable at all being, a, being involved in the television broadcast at all.
1: That's funny. He's almost like, oh, wait, this is a guy breaking kayfabe. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, this is a guy hurting my business here, even though you're oh, really yeah, not, absolutely. but that's his thought process.
0: Oh, definitely, definitely. And I, at that point, I was a little too naive to even understand that. So I was very lucky, very lucky that he, he went through.
1: Did you ever kind of think like some guys are like unattainable, but you were able to somehow land them? Like Fez seems to me like maybe the most rare, you know, interview and stuff. I mean, I was just like, oh, my God, wow, Fez interview. Wow, they got to check this out. This is amazing.
0: I feel like I, I did get very lucky on, on quite a few. Um, there would, I, I would always feel like I would prefer to do interviews over the email or, or mail because I felt like I was always bothering people, but a hundred percent a phone interview was always so much better. And, uh, you know the the phone interviews that I did were uh Luthez and Don Leo Jonathan and dory funk jr and and you know I would make contact with them before, and they'd say yeah call call me Thursday at you know this time, so at least they knew that I was calling and and if I had a chance, I'd send the questions prior um so you know they had an idea of, of what was coming so I think. Having some well thought out questions and different topics, you know, that they could see were going to be interesting to talk about, I think that helped a lot too. And then also, one other thing that would help with the connection, if I could ever find anything that would help, and I'll give you an example. When I called Bull Ramos or when I made contact with Bull Ramos, my wife. Had played with his daughter when they were little girls, and that connection just helped so much in you know facilitating the conversation where we had something you know in common to talk about before the interview ever started. Um, Yeah, that's another another example of that. John Tolos, and people have told me they've never seen an interview with John Tolos. And I had a connection with him. Um, I was at Cauliflower Alley when Cauliflower Alley was still in Los Angeles, and John Tolos was walking with Kaninsky, and they'd taken a walk outside. And I just kind of started following along, and there was a couple other people who were just following along, and Tolos was just ribbing Kaninsky endlessly, and Kaninsky. <laughs> Tolos is just giggling like a little kid, and Koninsky's no-selling everything. So anyway, we're walking around the grounds of, of the motel there. And then suddenly there's an earthquake, and John Tolos had lived in Southern California. He's go, oh, this is a big one. He goes, he goes, we're okay. And Koninsky's freaking out a little bit. I'm freaking out a little bit. And and so then later, 10 years later, I said, we had that connection. I said, do you remember when the – when, when that earthquake at Cauliflower Alley, I was the guy that was standing right next to you. <laughs> and so that was the icebreaker that helped, helped facilitate the the interview.
1: How random, right? Wow. <laughs> With guys like that, like the rare interviews and stuff, do you cherish those like more than some of the other interviews or do you treat them all kind of the same? Like do you put them all in the, in the same basket or like to me, sometimes like, like, I interviewed Dusty. Like, okay, that goes into, like, this, wow, that's up there with one of my favorites. Like, do you consider some guys, you know, bad, better than others or, or maybe, like, some of the favorite category?
0: Yeah, you have the names. And, like, we've talked about Don Leo Jonathan and and Tolos and Fez. I'm excited because those are the top names in wrestling. Um, sometimes – and. And when I, I had an interview with Stan Stasiak, and it's in Volume 1. And it, it's probably the only interview that was done cold. And when I say that, Portland Wrestling used to have just a hotline, and most of the time you could just call up and find out information on on what the matches were going to be. But for, I think, two afternoons a week... They put Stan Stasiak on the hotline, and you could call him up and talk to him and ask him questions. And so I called and explained, you know, what I'd like to do an interview with him here, and, you know, started asking him some questions, and I kind of built up, you know, he he didn't know who I was or, you know, to the extent of my knowledge or anything, and so I asked him the questions, I asked kind of asked everything that I wanted to know and save the best question for last and the the last question the question I really really wanted to know was what was the the night like when he won the WWF title you know did they spring it on him you know how how did it come about you know the, I wanted the details of that and so when i asked the question i'm kind of holding my breath and he pauses and it's like well I won the title, you know, and then it's like, oh, you know, and and you you can't be upset with him, you know, because that's just it's just the way it is, you know, and but you're disappointed that you, you know, he can't really take you there and explain exactly how it was. So, yes, I I there are interviews that I might say that's a great interview, um, that's one of my favorite interviews. But there's also the other thing that I've really thought of. You don't have to be a great, fantastic star to have a good interview. There's a, there's a local wrestler by the name of Pat Brady, and he wrestled in Calgary. I think he wrestled in the Maritimes, and he wrestled in Portland and Vancouver. A pretty short career. Um, he, he grew up watching Dynamite Kid and tried to emulate him. Uh, he's a, he was a good wrestler. He just his career just never really went anywhere. I feel like his interview because he was an intelligent young man. His interview was right up there as interesting to me, at least as you know some of the some of the top top names. I think he did did a really good job.
1: Would have been awesome to hear from Stasiak if he were you know, to open up and kind of break the kayfabe. Like, was there going to be a riot when he beat Pedro Morales? You know, stuff like that, it would be interesting. But I guess he kind of maybe didn't want to open up too much and, and reveal too much. Old school is a bone.
0: Right, exactly. And then, like I said, I'm calling him cold, so he doesn't he doesn't know who I am or, you know, anything about me. So, you know, you understand
1: why was he such a big fixture in the Pacific Northwest? I mean, was was that like his home away from home in New York was just somewhere where they they just wanted to book him and he was obviously a great wrestler, but like what what's I mean, it's, you can't get further apart. So it's like how come he was such a fixture in the Northwest?
0: He he grew up, I believe, in in Canada and he came to Portland I'm going to say about 1965. And he had a heel run here, and, and, yeah, he would just keep coming back here. He came back through the late 60s, early 70s, and, all, you know, he, he settled here, and um, he had a little bit of a run even in the in the 80s, and then he became a, a television announcer here for um, a good deal of time. Um, so, yeah, I think it was just a place that he, he would return to, and I, I think he settled here.
1: When you get guys like you know, kind of come in and come out, who's like a really big fixture of the territory that, not never left, but you know, like that was their home. Was would it be like a legendary guy like Dutch Savage or you mentioned Bull Ramos? Like who who's the like the real deal, true PNW guys
0: from the sixties? It's definitely Lonnie Main and Tony Bourne. Um, Bourne had had started here in the 50s so I'm I'm 61 so my memories start about 1968 1969 when I was 8 and 9 years old so Lonnie Main and Tony Bourne through that time period um, a wrestler by the name of Beauregard came in and inserted him and ended up breaking up Main and Bourne and and uh, I have his interview in, in volume 1 he he played a very interesting role because he his charisma was off the charts. And uh he talks about coming in to help be the mouthpiece for Lonnie Maine Um then as we as we get into the seventies, yeah, it's it's Dutch Savage who spent a, a large amount of time and also settled here. Uh bull ramus came in and was the, the perfect foe for savage and they feuded literally for years uh, we were fortunate enough to have jimmy snooker come in and be one of his first territories um, then as you get later into the 70s you had buddy rose and uh, and roddy piper you had a lot of others but those are the the main, you know, when, when you start thinking about just individuals in each decade, those are the ones that really stick out. Maine and Bourne, Savage, Ramus, Piper, and Rose.
1: When the NWA champion comes into town, like, who are some of the, not like the secondary guys, but the other guys that get title shots? I know probably Billy Jack Haynes, right? I know Dr. Tom Pritchard, obviously. um we we'll get a bunch of title shots. Like, who are the guys, just through the years, getting the NWA title shots when the champion comes through the town?
0: A lot of times, it was um, Savage and Main, uh, Johnny Boyd, Kurt Von Steiger, uh, Stasiak. I know had had some title shots. I really noticed this though in the in the '80s when Flair was champion. They started kind of putting different ty- uh different type of a wrestler who they knew was a good worker, maybe not on top of the cards at the very top of the cards, but they knew that they would have a great match. So I saw I saw Tom Pritchard wrestle Flair in uh, a very small town Malawa, Oregon, and uh, you knew that they would have a good match. Now Tom at that time was a, he was in a tag team with Brett Sawyer, and uh, not not singles at all, not on the top of the cards as far as singles. But you knew that he was a good worker and he'd have a good match. Um, uh, Terry Gibbs, who you know is kind of a forgotten person, I know he got a chance at, at Flair. Um, Chris Adams was a, a very good wrestler, but again. He wasn't on the top of the cards, but they knew those type of wrestlers would have a great, great match with Flair. Kind of a young, young wrestler who was ready to go and, and last that 45 minutes, or however long Flair was going to go.
1: When the NWA champ, how like how often would they come into the territory every few months, or maybe not even as much as that?
0: Maybe two to three times a year. That's, that was pretty standard, two to three times a year. I was just just thinking of uh, kind of looking. Besides these interviews, I'm thinking of also writing a history of, of a Portland book. And I've been starting, starting looking at that. And I was looking at a card in 1974 when Jack Briscoe had come. And Jack Briscoe came for two nights. He wrestled in Portland. I think he wrestled snooker. And the next night uh, was his last night in the territory, and it was in a town called Medford, a mid-sized Oregon town. And he wrestled Rasputin, who had wrestled in other parts of the, uh, the country as Black Angus. But what was really interesting about that card, it was the last night of Briscoe's tour, but Andres was, Andre the Giant was starting his week-long tour. And... They were overlapping in this small, small town. So with, um, Andre was in a tag match teaming with Snuka, and then Jack Briscoe was defending the NWA title against Rasputin, which makes that card, you know, one of the most unique cards ever in the history of Oregon.
1: Stacked and loaded, too. That's crazy. Is there yeah. a lot of footage of, like, say, that match? And, like, cause it seems like there's not as much footage as there could be out there of the NWA.
0: No, um, that would have been in 74, so I don't think there was a – that was way before I was doing my bulletin, but there was a bulletin, and it came out of Medford, so I I have seen pictures of that match. Um, But what I kicked myself when I first got a VCR, I would tape the matches, and then I would trade them you know, different fans around the country and and see what was going around, around you know, just tape trading. And I kicked myself for not keeping a copy, you know, and, and having,
1: yeah.
0: having tapes back from, like, I think I got my first DCR in 1982.
1: Damn, I always do that, too, like, regret stuff. Either you sold it or you got rid of it and you want it back, and then if you somehow get it back, it's Double or triple the price, or you can never get it back because it's so rare.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Portland Wrestling, the story goes that they never kept their library; they just kept recording, you know, each week recording over over the the previous
1: week, save money. Yeah, yeah. Always hear that, which sucks.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So, with you and obviously getting into the business and stuff were you always just a big wrestling fan that wanted to get into the business or like, how did that go for you as far as kind of going through your life?
0: Like, you know, when you're, when you're little, you know, junior high, high school, you know, you, you think about getting into wrestling and then I knew that I wasn't going to be big enough, not going to be athletic enough. And, but I felt like, like I wanted to write about wrestling, even even in high school, I felt like that that would be the perfect job. And uh, it's a, but it's like there's only one or two, you know, jobs, and and seems like they're taken already. Uh, but so yeah, I I, I always had a, a kind of a I just wanted to know, you know, before I was aware. So when I was in third grade. I moved away and moved to Ohio, and I made my grandma. The wrestling results were always in the paper. I made my grandma save the entire year of sports sections, so that when I returned the following summer, I could, you know, find out what happened in Portland wrestling over the year that I was gone. When I, when I was in college, I went into the library and started looking through. Microfilm of old newspapers, and then spending hours and hours in there writing down, you know, the results of the matches years and years uh, prior. Like I I went into the '40s, you know, and just tried to record and document those results.
1: When you look back, you're like, wow, um, you know, I I get into the business, I win CAC Melby. Historian Award. Did you always kind of think like, "Wow, this stuff is is valuable. This is great information. This is great content," or was this just passion? You know, you're not really thinking about that stuff. It's all about passion and just loving the business.
0: Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. I guess a passion. Any piece of mail that I got that had any wrestling related, I would save. And I wasn't really sure why I was saving it, but I would just save it. And then later on when I'd get a computer and, and as the years went by, it would be like let's let's take all this mail that I have and compile, you know, results and just see what the territory looked like. And so, you know, I had started with Portland and had the whole history of Portland, but then I just started going to territories that I thought were interesting. So like it'd be like okay, here's, here's my mail from 1980-81. Let's see what happened in Stampede. And I would just start entering in the computer all the results I could find for that territory. And as the years went, went by, I would have every year from every territory. And I it's funny, I, I really thought I had about the largest wrestling result collection, one of the largest, and then here in the last few years I found Wrestle data and and cage match and it's like okay how did how did and some of their some of my stuff is on there I can see results and things that I would have been the only one to to come across but it's like how did they get ten times as much as I have you know it's it's like there's a lot of treasures of of a collection of, of wrestling history.
1: Cage match especially pretty amazing some of the stuff doesn't have everything but it's pretty amazing most of the stuff that they have on there right for you like just go back to the book for a second like what's I don't know like um, not a favorite story but what's something that you think people would really just be not shocked by but like maybe a little surprised or something that they would really get a kick out of like maybe um, just a really really fun story from the book.
0: There's a, a story uh, Dutch Savage tells, and I had asked him, you know, since he worked with Lonnie and and also Mr. Fuji at times, who and both of them are well-known ribbers, you know, if there was a story that that he could tell or or a rib that he could remember, and and he told a, a very good one. So they're drive the three of them are driving to. a a town in southern Oregon, so it'd be like a four or five hour drive. And uh, Mr. Fuji was drinking, and they kind of laid off and, and didn't drink as much. And, and they had the matches, and they're coming back, and they're just urging Fuji to continue drinking. And, and by the time they got back to Portland, Fuji's out. So the story goes, they they take him and they they have a little rubber raft, and there's this old folks home retirement center, and there's a lake that that's surrounding this this center, and so they they undress Fuji, put him in the little raft and push him out into this lake, and so they, and then they then they wait they. Get in their car in the parking lot and, and they wait. And as morning starts and people start coming out for their morning walk and and you know they're shocked to see Mr. Fuji out in this in this little uh, raft in the middle of their lake. And so evidently the police were called and you know and and I, I can just picture Savage in Maine thinking that was the best rib ever.
1: Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> With everything, like, in your career, I just thought it was interesting, like, you also did refereeing, right? And you were an interviewer, like, you're actually in the business. Like, not just historian, not just covering it, but you're actually in, you know, in the thick of it.
0: I, um, yeah, I haven't mentioned my good friend Ed Moretti, Moondog Moretti. I met him in 1987 and we had written to each other and Ed is such a fan of wrestling and and I happened to see him at a mall and I went up and introduced him and we had we had written prior and and uh, it was literally like I had just found my long lost brother we stood there and visited for an hour and and he goes well we'll have to go to a show and so I started writing with him to to different shows and And uh, then one day he said, "Mike, I'm going to run my own show." He goes, "I'd like you to be the referee," and uh, he goes, "I think you do a good job." And uh, so, the first night that I refed, it was uh, Cowboy Lang and a local midget, and then Buddy Rose and Ed Moretti, and they they had two singles, and then uh, I think there was a a girls' match on the card as well, and it was just a, a two night. Like a fair, and uh, so a funny story from from Raffing, Uh Cowboy Lang and the other other midget come out, and uh, my son is probably five five years old, so he's watching, and then he he asked my mom. He goes, "Is my dad gonna be whittle too?" <laughs> hmm. We always we always tease him about that. We think that's a, a funny story. But, yeah, I I did. I I continued to ref. I refed in Canada for Tim Flowers for six months or so and in Tacoma for Dave Debashi for a year or so. And I also ref for Jerry Gray, who came into the area and had some shows with with some pretty big names. I I was in the ring with George Steele and Earthquake and um, Jimmy Snuka and Greg Valentine, um, Ricky Morton. Um, Sergeant Slaughter, you know, I, I was really tickled to be in the ring with, with some of those, you know, legend wrestlers.
1: Did you want to be like in the business as far as like more than what you were like, did you want to be like a manager? Did you want to wrestle? Was that ever in your thought process?
0: In Tacoma, I knew I was not going to be good at wrestling but in Tacoma, one time at this uh, small, small show, they were going to have a – I was the ref, and and they were going to have a battle royal. And uh, driving up, I, I said to Ed, I said, I think I'd like to be in the battle royal, in the battle royal, not ref it, in the battle royal. And he, he kind of laughs, and he goes, you think so? I go, yeah, I, I don't think that I want to get thrown over the top rope, but I could be pinned. I go, I don't want to win, but I could be pinned. And – uh uh, so that's that's what happened. It, uh, the match that was prior to the battle royal broke down, and everybody on the card came out to interfere, and the battle royal just started from there. And I I pulled off my rough shirt and just started. <laughs> and Ed loves to tell this story. He said that I started having this guttural groan or scream as as i'm working my way around the ring and and he laughed he goes i was gonna work with you a little bit but i started backing off because i don't know what you were doing mike <laughs> he tells the story so well
1: <laughs> i love that
0: but yeah i knew that it was just that one time
1: so there wasn't like aspirations as far as you know, being a wrestler, so to speak, you know, when you're younger, obviously everyone's like, Oh, I want to be, you know, even me, when I grew up it's like, oh, I want to be Hulk Hogan. You know what I mean? Right. Different era is a different thing. Did you ever think like, Oh, I want to be a wrestler?
0: Um, when I was little, maybe, but not, not really, not really.
1: <laughs> With you and and kind of going back to the historian part, do you have Favorite wrestlers, or maybe favorite interviews? Like, do you have guys that you gravitated to more? Maybe you had some better chemistry with
0: for the for the interviews.
1: Yeah, in like in general, like, oh man, I, I can't wait to talk to him again, or you know, guys like that you really kind of gravitate to.
0: Right, Ed Moretti, and and I've mentioned that he has become one of my, you know, very good friends. We did over the years three different interviews, and. He did such a good job. He answered the questions so completely and and so thoroughly. And I, I think it is because, you know, we have a good relationship. I think he would, you know, trust, trust, doing the interview that it's, in the right, going to the right place and everything. Um, I was just thinking of of this, also earlier tonight. Um, I when I interviewed Bull Ramus, I had. Set aside two hours, and after about two hours, I had an appointment at the veterinarian to take my dog in and we 're visiting and the interview is going great he's He is really enjoying himself, and we 'd come almost to the to the conclusion and he goes what well, what else well, What else can we talk about? you know what else do you want to know and uh, I think a little bit and I go, Well, tell me about this you know this guy or this guy and uh, finally it got it got to the point where I really had to go and I and you know that I hung up and I go I'm going to have to call him again just to visit and I never did and now you know as as I'm getting older and I I'm thinking like oh I'd like to know about this you know and way back in, in history and it's like, okay, J. Michael Kenyon's not around anymore, Dean Silverstone's not around anymore. You know, th- those people that I would go and ask just aren't around anymore. And it's like, oh I wanna want to try and do a good job of preserving wrestlers' stories and reserve, you know, preserving their their story. Their one other interesting thing. I, I was thinking about this very, very unique match. It was between Matt Bourne and, and Rip Oliver, and it was 1981. And what was so unique about it, it was a, set up to be a regular cage match, and then they had set, set up a secondary cage that would have been on the floor, and then I think it was Matt Bourne's idea. He was going to bring in Doberman Pinchers put them between the cages and that would prevent anybody from leaving the cage or any other wrestler from trying to interfere from outside. And then it didn't go as they envisioned because the Dobermans were very shy. The the crowd, you know, startled them. And then the bumps from the match scared them and they're in the corners, you know, and just kind of hiding and shivering down and, and i remember that buddy rose tried to save the match he wasn't in the match but he he tried to interfere and he he'd, he'd climb up and go in between the spaces where the dogs were and he he'd try try to get them to chase him try to get them to perk up a little bit and he try to try to um save the match and i was thinking about that and it's like oh gosh you know let me let me see who I can reach out to if they have any memories of that match. And I go, oh my gosh, it seems like yesterday, but no, it's been 40 years now. And I look at the card and there's like two guys left that are alive from that card. And it kind of hits you. We're going to lose so much of the history and so much, so many stories. And I, you know, that's, that's sad, you know, and I'm sitting there, who, who else can I talk to? I go, well, okay. You know, I reach out to some of the rest, like, like Wyskowski, Ed Wiskowski, And I said, did Buddy ever say anything about this match? And he had no memory of it. And, and I'm thinking like, okay, maybe Rip Oliver's son, who was a wrestler, Larry Oliver. I haven't done that yet, but, you know, maybe Rip Oliver related some memories to him, you know, and it's like, you're just kind of in search of this the story behind, you know. Maybe they say, Oh what a what a cluster that was. Let's don't ever do that again or you know. What what were they feeling? What was the story behind it?
1: With a lot of the like legends, like you mentioned, the Rip Olivers, Buddy Rose, Piper Billy Jack Haynes. There's so many guys associated with that area. Are they still remembered fondly or is wrestling kind of on the back burner in the Pacific Northwest these days?
0: I had mentioned earlier that it was such a tradition that, you know, in kind of trying to promote my book and stuff. I'd go on like different face Facebook sites that aren't wrestling related at all. They're just like memories of Portland, you know, and and uh, you, you start start right there and say, hey, I've, if you remember Portland Wrestling, here's a here's a book out that's now that's now out, and then you'd have like seventy or eighty people start commenting. You know, and and I'm thrilled that it, that it brought up that much that many comments and everything, and it's like that's that's more comments than I would get on the you know a, a Portland Wrestling Facebook, you know devoted to wrestling and it's like that's there are so many memories of of portland wrestling in the portland community even even now even if it's the essence of portland wrestling's been gone 25 to or more years people still have that memory
1: so as we hit the wind down we head towards the finish here who are you some of your just favorite wrestlers just as a fan like who are your favorites to looking back, and even maybe if there's some current guys, but who are your favorites?
0: Um, I can remember seeing Bobby Shane when I was nine years old, and uh, he became one of my favorites. And I, I, I can remember him having a headlock on another wrestler, and it was just, you know, today, today the move that I'm going to describe would be, would be nothing, but he had a headlock on a wrestler, and the wrestler was trying to work him off. And Bobby Shane stepped up, climbed up each turnbuckle while still holding the, the headlock, spun around, and came down and was able to get the pin. And I had just never seen anything like that before. And so Bobby Shane was a was a baby face in our territory in 69 and and good-looking guy. And, and he became one of my favorites. Um, Lonnie Maine was always one of my favorites. I was fortunate enough to see Dynamite Kid in his prime here uh before he went to w w f and and his cutting edge and and uh, such a good wrestler such a good wrestler um, I always love what you know I've mentioned ed's a good friend uh, you know when I'd go and see Ed and especially if he knew I was in the crowd. Ed would make it a point. To try to do something to make me laugh, so he he'd say something like, "like tonight we're doing Jimmy Snuka spots," and he'd he'd start doing the Jimmy Snuka dance, you know. And and uh, one time he's wrestling and the the turnbuckle comes off and the 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 hook, the actual hook, and uh, so that's laying in the ring and Ed's still wrestling, and he looks out at me and we we make eye contact and I did the natural natural thing anybody would do I put my my finger in my mouth and like <laughs> you've got to use that and you've got to hook him with it <laughs> He starts laughing and you know he reaches out and and uh, does it he puts the turnbuckle in the other wrestler's mouth and and it's you know Ed always we always had a a good time but it was it was funny he he, it was kind of his goal to, you know, in, in a, some way interact.
1: I love that, you know, you got so close to a lot of these guys. It just shows you, you know, they kind of appreciate the historians that are out there.
0: They, I think so. The The very first time I ever went to Dean Silverstone's, I brought with, you know, all those results that I had had researched and so we brought him out at the reunion and it's like I wrestled in 61 do you have anything from 61 you know be like here here's the year of 61 and they'd go through it you know and it would it would bring back memories and and uh I think it is how you know how I got over with some of them you know and and uh some I I just never asked to do interviews and I kind of kicked myself but it was like now we're friendly you know and and most of them still came from that kayfabe area area era and I remember one time I had gotten pretty close pretty friendly with Tito Montez who was a kind of a journeyman wrestler and we're visiting at, at Silverstone's reunion and I I said, you know, I really didn't think too much of it. I said, Tito, we're going to have to do an interview. And he doesn't say anything. And it, and it hits me, you know, okay, you know, there's still that line there, you know. And, and inadvertently, I had crossed it just a little bit. And I said, oh, you know, we don't have to. It's, you know, just something to think about. You know, I tried to smooth it over, you know, and I – I got to be pretty good friends with Dean Higuchi. He would write me letters and correspond with me. And, you know, I, I would be sending him the bulletin and he would, he would send me these wonderful handwritten letters, you know, and I, I hadn't had not asked him for an interview. And then in the last few years, I realized that I hadn't heard from him and I, I wrote him a letter and I, I kicked myself for not writing it earlier. it was, it was, probably a week before he passed away. And it's it it's just uh, you know it's just like all these wrestlers that were you were were your heroes and you had you were fortunate enough to meet you know and and now time's just moving too fast. That that's for sure. Everybody has a story to tell. You know their story. And I think that's why there's a lot of wrestlers in here that people are familiar with, but they don't know the story. And this gives, you know, wrestling fans a chance to learn learn about new, you know, people that maybe they've heard about but don't know too much about. Um, Daniel Bryan, Brian Danielson. His interview is early in his career. It, it's fascinating. He said, "I think I'm." I'm going to start uh college. I'm going to, I'm going to go uh, study literature at this community college. And, you know, I don't know if, if there's much more of a career for me in wrestling, I, you know, I find that fascinating, you know, Kyle O'Reilly, um, Kyle O'Reilly has diabetes and he talks a little bit about that, you know, and that's something that did. you wouldn't know, you know, just, just from watching him on TV. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, just little things that you find out that becomes part of their story, is, is what I really think is, is interesting. That's, that's what I like to read about. You know, when I'm, you know, all the different wrestlers who, have, who are writing their books, their own books. You know, it's, it's interesting to find out what their pathway was. Yeah, I, you know, we, we talked about we want to front load it and make the first one fantastic you know put all the best names in and then it's like okay well let's balance it out a little bit and kind of put the guys in from the different eras and and here's who we have tentatively lined out for for the second one there's John Tolo's Mad Dog Deshawn Ivan Koloff Billy White Wolf Rick Martel Bobby Jaggers, Bad News Allen, Siegfried Stonkey, Norman Charles of the Royal Kangaroos, Christopher Daniels, who is a current star, uh, Davey Richards, who's more of a current star, uh, Dory Funk Jr., um, Buddy Wayne, who is a pretty much has always been a, a local Northwest wrestler, and unfortunately Buddy Wayne passed away much much too early a few years ago. But his son is just about ready to break out nationally, and he's only 17, and he's traveling about every every weekend around the country, you know. And and uh, his name's Nick Wayne, and uh, so we've got two different interviews with Buddy Wayne, and hopefully we'll get something from Nick Wayne as well put in there. But if you like Volume One, I think Volume Two is going to be going to be just as good. I think a lot of it is um, also is so many of uh, wrestlers got their start here. You know, Tully Blanchard and Gino Hernandez and Magnum T.A. And, you know, they were in preliminaries here, you know, and some of them were just getting their break. Jesse Ventura and Piper and Buddy Rose, you know, they, they spent early parts of their career here and just got their seasoning and everything. It is on Amazon, and it's the title is The Excitement in the Air, The Voices of Northwest Wrestling, Volume 1.
1: I love it. So much good stuff. Uh, the Luthez, Stasiak stuff, If you're like an old-school fan. Like that popped me. And then obviously Brian Danielson, my current really favorite wrestler. Again, he's in the book too. So different eras, very cool stuff. But Mike, thank you so much for all the time. Really appreciate
0: it. Oh, thank you so much.
1: This has been a John Paz power trip production in conjunction with the two man power trip of wrestling. You could follow us on Instagram and Twitter at two man power trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT empire to become a patron and also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at pro wrestling two man power trip where the power lies. Brother.